2: Erin French is the owner and chef of the hugely popular restaurant, The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine. But on that journey to success, she fell hard and had to rise.
3: I felt comfortable in the kitchen and to feel comfortable in a place when my world felt so uncomfortable was a place that I wanted to keep returning to.
2: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We talk with Erin French about her new memoir. Plus, to diversify staff and address inequality, more and more employers say they're dropping degree requirements for certain jobs and gaining a market advantage.
4: As I kept being offered opportunities to
2: advance in a tech world without a degree, I just kept taking them. And Vermont hospice workers reflect on the trauma of the past year.
5: I smelled the spring air and I thought, hmm, it smells like COVID to me. Um... So it just is really making me think about, in the past year, all the lives I've seen lost. It's Next.
0: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region
2: with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. In the rural town of Freedom, Maine, population 700, there's a hugely popular restaurant. The Lost Kitchen is the brainchild of owner and chef Erin French and the crew of women who work with her. During normal times, the restaurant is fully booked for the season, months in advance. The New York Times has written about it, so has Martha Stewart Living, and the Magnolia Network has a new TV series on The Lost Kitchen. Erin French grew up in Freedom, Maine, working at her father's diner, and she's written a new memoir called Finding Freedom, a cook's story, remaking a life from scratch. It documents her tumultuous path from frying clam baskets at the diner to opening a restaurant that has become a famous destination. Erin joins us to talk about it. Welcome to Next.
3: Hi, Morgan. Thanks.
2: So I want to start near the beginning. You didn't go to culinary school or train with, you know, a famous chef, you are self taught. And you were also taught by your father who ran a diner. And what was it like for you working in your father's diner as a teenager and young adult? I'd
3: say probably as a teenager, I was a bit resentful at times. The diner was kind of a frustrating place that I felt that I was just thrown into as part of family life, but I found ways throughout my time there to to sort of bring my own enjoyment to it, whether it was adding nasturtiums to lobster rolls or coming up with a nightly special. So I was in a place that sort of felt miserable. I found my own way to make it joyful in my own way. So,
2: Yeah, I mean... You said that you felt resentful at times, and and you describe your father in your memoir as volatile and not openly affectionate, and you write that he inflicted emotional trauma. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between the two of you in general and at the diner?
3: Well, our relationship was always quite challenging Um, you know I look at it now as as an adult and I look at it now as running my own restaurant and there's part of me that completely understands why he was and is the way that he is and how the restaurant shaped him and I think that was part of my push to not recreate that same pattern within myself and to become that same person because it can be a really challenging work environment and a place that can really chew you up and and spit you out. And it it did that to my dad. It It was challenging. And how he dealt with it was through drinking and through just being generally angry and stressed out. Yeah, how would he teach you to cook? He really taught me a lot of the basic cooking skills that you would need as a cook, everything from just cooking hamburgers. I mean, I just remember that griddle that was just filled with everything from dozens of hamburgers to steaks to livers on the grill that he would have to be manning and figuring out. You had to, you had to watch every single piece of meat that was cooking and make sure that you had your timing. So it taught me a lot about multitasking and, and intuition and how to cook things just perfectly so, how to dress things just perfectly so, I was learning like all of these just simple cooking skills. So he really taught me a lot of those basics that I've been building upon.
2: And then you really started cooking more independently after you had your son. You were 21 when you had him. You dropped out of college at Northeastern University in Boston, and your son's biological father was not in the picture. You'd moved back to Freedom, Maine. What inspired you to return to cooking? Well,
3: I was at a point where everything just felt like I was in complete despair and it was cooking was the one thing that I felt like I I was okay at. And I felt comfortable in the kitchen and to feel comfortable in a place when my world felt so uncomfortable was a place that I wanted to keep returning to. and It was the place that sort of took me in and, and let me practice and, and feel okay and find a bit of joy. So the kitchen was definitely my comfort zone in a lot of uncomfortable moments in my life.
2: Did you feel like that food was love? Like food was your dad's way of showing love? Food was, you know, your other relatives way of showing love and that it was becoming that for you too? food
3: was 100% a vessel of love in my life. And there were a lot of moments when my dad couldn't say those words. He wasn't the kind of guy who would come out and give you a hug and tell you that he loved you. But he would make these delicious meals and create these delicious moments. And that for me was just this feeling of a giant hug or saying I love you without actually saying it. I wanted other people to feel those feelings in my life as I started to grow you know, with, from having a son to relationships and, and just caring for people. So it's definitely something that's become a major vessel for me that I use to show love.
2: My guest is Erin French, the renowned chef and owner of The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine. We're talking about her new memoir, Finding Freedom, A Cook's Story, Remaking a Life from Scratch. So Aaron, you started really sharing your cooking with other people initially through supper clubs. And then you opened the first iteration of the Lost Kitchen in Belfast, Maine, which is a coastal and more touristy town. And you opened it with your husband at the time, and it was a huge success, but behind the scenes, things were unraveling. What was happening?
3: I had come to a point in my marriage and this was before the restaurant had even opened. The marriage had always been challenging. It had been something that that was ongoing. And when I got into opening that first restaurant, I didn't I didn't go into that moment in my life understanding how actually toxic and dead that my marriage was. And so I went into what was a very challenging work schedule, sometimes working 18 hours a day to having very little emotional support and not a lot of help when it came to me being emotionally well, mentally well, physically well. I wasn't feeding myself. I, was, I went into the business struggling with depression about my marriage. I went in with anxiety. So I went in to a challenging work environment already completely stressed and I've said before, if you if you want to find out, if you have cracks in your relationship, you open a restaurant and you will find out. And for me, that discovery was finding out that we completely imploded.
2: You mentioned that you entered into the restaurant already, you know, dealing with depression and anxiety. You write about in the book how you started, well, you went to a doctor and you said, you know, these are my symptoms, help me. And you were prescribed all these different drugs. And then you write how you, over time, just leaned more and more heavily on those prescription drugs while you were working in the restaurant for hours and hours. And after that night where you have this confrontation with your husband, you were basically given an ultimatum. Am I getting that right? Right.
3: I mean the choice was really it's like you you've got to go to rehab you've got to go figure things out or you know this is all going to be gone I'll take your home I'll take your kid I'll take the restaurant every everything will go away you have this choice to make
2: So all those things that he basically said he would do even though you did go to rehab you lost custody of your son for a period of time you lost the restaurant you lost your home and you write in such like just vulnerable detail about it and it's pretty heartbreaking to read and then you then you have this passage on page 208 and I'm wondering if you could could read that for us
3: if you've been through a divorce then you know that it just flat out sucks there's no way to avoid the shame and the pain that will splinter your life For me, divorce felt like a scalpel, had been run down my chest exposing my insides for public display so everyone and anyone could see the private tragedy that was ripping my family apart. Our small town gobbled up morsels of gossip surrounding our divorce, depression, mental illness, addiction. The whispers had people I hardly even knew shaking their heads, throwing sideways glances, and indicting me on the street. It was hard just to not stay in bed and hide from the judgment, But I also knew that if I wallowed, I would lose everything. If I stayed in bed, I would prove right all those who doubted me, that I was incapable of finding stability and strength. I had to get out of bed, so I fought like hell to rise.
2: Now, Erin, this is just, it's like my nightmare. I also grew up in rural Maine, and the thought of going through these struggles and these hardships and having it on public display, it, it just like makes my throat tighten. How did you, how did you deal with that? Oh, I
3: mean, it's making me shake a bit inside right now, just thinking it and going back in that moment. And, you know, when I read these passages, when I wrote them, I, I went back deep into those moments to relive it and recapture it and it was it was devastating for a while you know freedom the town of freedom where i grew up really gave me that escape to just go back to my parents house and just almost just put my head in the sand out of you know complete embarrassment of i couldn't even i couldn't even go to the co-op and any time i would even drive close to belfast i could just feel my blood pressure rise and i could feel nausea and shaking and it took a while for me to to get through that and have the strength and to be able to stand up and be like I'm not that person that you th- that you're hearing that you think that all of these rumors going around town that were just devastating small town they just they just love that gossip and they they love a, t- a good tumble down too I had I had tumbled down real hard. And so I figured out that the only thing that was going to heal that was time. It was really just letting the dust settle and just being in freedom and having that, that quiet peace and not not worrying about it, just just staying away until I could feel confident about myself again.
2: I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And I wonder, you know, was there a part of you that wrote this book for the, that small town, you know, to tell people like, look, this is my side of the story?
3: No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that, there are two big reasons of why I wrote this story. One was that I realized living through some of it, I hadn't really put it to bed. I hadn't really come to acceptance, true acceptance and true forgiveness for a lot of the moments that happened. And, and I needed to, to be able to move forward and to be able to put things to rest and put things to bed and put that chapter away. And so for me, I really approached this as almost letter to myself to go back and through those moments because I just pushed through them so hard that I really didn't take the time to actually accept them. The second reason of why I wrote this book was because I I came to the understanding that you know, these struggles are not extremely unique, but what they are is relatable. And I know that in those moments, there were some moments that were so dark and so bleak, and I hated myself so much, and I could not see a way out at some point, and I felt utterly alone, like more alone than I've ever than like, you could even imagine. I knew that if I shared these stories and if you could see the way that I felt then, and you could see that where I've come to now, that for anyone who has battled any of these demons, whether it has been being a single mom, having complete fear, being in a toxic relationship, having addiction, that someone may... And if it was just one person who said, you made me feel less alone, you made me have hope, and you made me believe that I could accomplish something greater than I ever thought possible myself, then, then this book would be worth every vulnerable moment that I ever put into it. I think the big message is that you have to recognize challenging times are the ones that build you. And I look back on those now. And if I had never gone through any of those moments, I would never be exactly where I am right now. Those moments built me. And I believe in those moments now. And I forgive myself for those moments. And I see them as part of who I am. And they gave me strength.
2: Yeah. How has it felt to have the book out?
3: Um, It's probably more surreal than I think anything that's happened, even the show. I mean, this has been um, just because it's such a personal journey and such a personal story. Um, But there was a moment on the day of release, and I really felt like it was one of the best days of my life. Uh, All the ladies here at the Lost Kitchen made this big, beautiful taco and cake lunch. And some of the old employees came out and popped by. And I just felt showered with love and support and besides that in the wedding day in the moment I held my my son for the first time it was like the most beautiful moment of my life and really a feeling of release and relief as well of just okay here it is it's out there and it's all for everyone to see and judge and you can hate me or you can love me and I'm okay either way like I'm fine
2: <laughs> that's amazing that's a big statement. You know, like, I, th- I think we all probably hope we could get there one day.
3: Yeah, to, f- to feel that confidence in, in yourself. I mean, I've had moments, and this is taken, I was telling my husband this the other night, it's like it's taken all of these moments to get to this point of strength of saying, love me, hate me, leave me, I'm, I'm okay in that way. And it's taken every moment, and it's really been this week of arrival for me to feel, to feel 100% okay.
2: Well, Erin, thank you so much for sharing your story and your bravery with us. Erin French is the owner and chef of The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine, and author of the new memoir, Finding Freedom, A Cook's Story, Remaking a Life from Scratch. Erin, it's been so good talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Morgan. growing number of higher education leaders and economists are coming to this conclusion the country's education system perpetuates racial and economic disparities it's leading to greater inequality that's why more and more employers say they're dropping degree requirements for certain jobs it's a way to diversify their staff and gain a market advantage from GBH radio's higher ed desk Kurt Carapesa reports the Config flows,
4: those are all super easy. And the config flows... um,
1: Inside her apartment in Watertown, Emily Knowles meets with her software development team. Knowles is a quality assurance analyst, Uh, and remotely via Zoom, she tests apps to make sure they work the way they're supposed to. Complete
4: config flow, checking everything in
1: there. I
6: see.
1: Knowles Um, is biracial, a daughter of black and white immigrants who never went to college, and she's working in tech a field dominated by highly educated white and Asian men.
4: This is something that I never thought would be
1: possible. That's in part because the 23-year-old has some college credits, but not a degree. Before she landed this job with Ovia Health, a Boston-based digital company that serves people who are starting families, Knowles was working as an aide at an elementary school. After attending a software boot camp, though, she says her dream was to work in tech.
4: I was always just like, I would never be able to do that. I do not have the mental capacity to to think in that way. But as I kept being offered opportunities to advance in a tech world without a degree, I just kept
1: taking them. The tech industry is filled with the same type of people who have the same type of education and often advantages. As the sector expands, economists say this trend is reinforcing inequality. So Ovia Health and other companies outside of the field are identifying entry level jobs like the one Knowles got and dropping the degree requirement.
7: It's not about doing the right thing for us. It's about being a great company.
1: That's Paris Wallace, CEO and co-founder of Ovia Health. Wallace is African-American and a graduate of Amherst and Harvard Business School. Two years ago, he says his leadership team decided to remove the degree requirements for all jobs.
7: We were missing out on a lot of talent by having what we saw was an arbitrary requirement for many positions.
1: Massachusetts has the highest percentage of jobs that require some education beyond high school. Wallace says for him, dropping those requirements wasn't just about increasing access and equality.
7: It's a huge competitive advantage versus those companies that only, you know, are hiring those Ivy League folks that have no idea the experience of the people that they serve every day.
1: Companies outside the tech industry, including State Street and CVS, are doing the same, says Tracy Burns, CEO of the Northeast Human Resources Association.
3: It might not be all job descriptions, but definitely a trend to really evaluate the true necessity of, of
1: a four year degree. Are you encouraging employers to do that or are you agnostic?
3: Well, I should be agnostic. I do have you know, a master's degree, so it's sort of like, okay, well, I value all of that experience, obviously, and I value higher education, but I also think that it helps level the playing field.
1: And as the cost of college has spiked, Byrne says it's increasingly hard for companies to justify requiring a four-year degree. I think it's just
3: been sort of this degree inflation rampant here in the Northeast, too. We have so many educational institutions that, you know, we just throw it on there as a way to say we're hiring the best and the brightest. But it's not really much of an indication of that.
1: Some economists say it may be even worse because research shows employers demanding a bachelor's degree as a screen for hiring increases social and racial inequality.
7: They've turned college from a bridge to opportunity to a drawbridge that gets pulled up if someone hasn't gotten
1: through. Economist Byron Auguste served as deputy director of the National Economic Council in the Obama administration. Auguste, who is black and earned a Ph.D. from Oxford, says in 2021, college degrees have become a proxy for race and class in America.
7: If you arbitrarily say that a job needs to have a bachelor's degree, you are screening out over 70% of African Americans. You're screening out about 80% of of Latino, Latino workers, and you're screening out over 80 percent of rural Americans of all races, and you're doing that before any skills are assessed. It's not fair. We've become a credentialed society.
1: Economist Tony Carnivali is with Georgetown's Center on Education and the Workforce. Carnevale, who is white and has a Ph.D. himself, says college credentials are still the most efficient way to hire. But he thinks America is suffering from what he calls credentialism.
5: You can't get a job or move in the labor market without a piece of paper that says you can do something. And that is a very un-American idea.
1: So employers like Ovia Health in Boston are asking candidates to prove their skills through what they call competency or project-based hiring.
6: It definitely creates a little bit more work.
1: Lexi Cantor is head of human resources at Ovia, where over the past two years, The percentage of employees without college degrees has increased from one to five percent. Cantor tells hiring managers not to ask candidates about college or fraternities or sororities. Instead, the company puts more value on the life experience.
6: Rather than a piece of paper that someone paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for. Yes, it may take a a couple of extra days or a little bit extra time looking through resumes, but usually it it pays off for us definitely. And for the candidates, especially who get access to a role that they may not have otherwise. So I think there's a a a
1: build functionality. Mm -hmm. Candidates like Emily Knowles, how do you think your life experience has given a company like Ovia, a competitive edge.
4: At the beginning, I was like afraid to say things um, because it's like I'm just this kid like, who hasn't been to college. I was like, they're not going to care about what I have to say, but they really do care and they really want to hear and they take those to heart and will do what we can to like put those into our applications.
1: Despite her ability to get ahead without a degree, Knowles is enrolling in a computer science program this spring, but she doesn't plan to leave the workforce. She'll take courses online and at night. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kirk Carrapeza.
2: Coming up, we'll hear from a New Hampshire woman who is affirming black lives with an online sex store. It's Next.
0: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart
2: Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. During the protests last summer over the violent deaths of Black people by law enforcement, a Black woman in New Hampshire was hurting. Amid the hurt, she decided she was going to create a space for self acceptance and well being. WBUR's Quincy Walters reports she's aiming to affirm black lives with a sex store. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe.
7: Last summer, as incantations of justice for black lives were reaching their apex, ideas of revolution were churning in the mind of Catherine Sabir Beach
8: a sexually fluid Muslim Black woman who also happens to be queer.
7: She was thinking about Black people and...
8: How we're mistreated, murdered, disrespected, disregarded in society as a whole. I wanted to make a space where Black folks and queer people and people of marginalized genders weren't just included. Like, I wanted us to exist because of us, not just including
7: us. Sabir Beach has worked in the adult novelty industry for several years, and so she figured she'd use that experience and expertise as a foundation for that space she wanted to make, and she dubbed it House of Body.
8: B-A-W-D-Y, Black folks specifically will say House of Body. Like, they just know. They just draw out the word. It's exciting.
7: And the word house is a nod to drag and ball culture. But the concept of home is something she wanted to foster with her store. Sabir Beach wants House of Body to be more than just a source of cuffs and other kinky stuff. She doesn't want sexy things to be House of Body's only commodity. So if you go on their website, House of body.com it's and it's only an online site for now it is bannered with a message that says black lives pleasures desires and dreams don't just matter here they are why we are here and there's also a playlist of songs they call baby making music and twerking anthems that sort of served as sort of inspiration for this venture and there are pictures of everyday people with all types of bodies wearing risque lingerie.
5: I feel seen. And and that's with a capital S.
7: People like Cambridge resident Kelly Tiller,
5: pronouns are she, her, hers, and queer masculine of center. <laughs> yes, so my day job, I am an attorney
7: and not a professional sexy attire model. But when she saw a call for models on House of Body social media, she knew she had to do it.
8: Being on a health journey myself
5: and really feeling comfortable in my skin, being able to show my body (laughs) and showcasing that, it really just felt like such a natural
7: experience. And now Tiller says she's a House of Body consumer, not just of the products.
5: Now, you know, I didn't bought some of the products, you know, watch out.
7: (laughs) Tiller has also been interested in some of the Zoom classes that House of Body has held about sexual health and well-being. And that aspect is exciting to Maryland-based Black sexologist Desiree Robinson. She says she now has a place where she can direct clients for additional support because there aren't a lot of spaces like House of Body.
4: So even having a space where you think of, oh, this is just where I buy um, my toys and have fun and kiki, but they're also offering classes, blog posts, resources. Appropriate sex education is important.
7: But she says at its core, House of Body is meeting a very foundational human need.
4: Most things come down to this basic principle that the key motivator to human behavior is the need to belong. We all need to belong someplace. And so whether that is our families, our social groups, um, our jobs, even someplace like a sex store,
7: But the owner of House of Body, Catherine Sabir Beach, says it's much more than a sex store. It's sort of a citadel for
8: wellness, belonging, joy, pleasure, definitely that one.
7: Sabir Beach says in a world that seems to either ignore or fetishize or abuse black people and people with different types of bodies, she wanted to make a space where her and their existence can just be and where they don't have to fight or protest for it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Quincy Walters.
2: We heard about Marty Fuller from an Instagram post. She introduced herself as an outdoor enthusiast and wrote, quote, the white colonial imagination has never created room for black folk to enjoy nature, unquote. We wanted to talk to Marty about this experience and also the systems and structures she says forcibly deny Black people access to the outdoors. Marty Fuller is a volunteer leader with Outdoor Afro in Boston, and she recently climbed all 48 peaks in New Hampshire that are over 4,000 feet, and she did it in the winter. Marty, welcome to Next.
9: Thank you for having me.
2: I quoted you at the top saying that the, quote, white colonial imagination doesn't create room for black people to enjoy nature. And as a black woman, when you're hiking in New England, like when you're hiking these 4,000 plus peaks, um, what can that experience be like?
9: When I said that the white colonial imagination has never created room for black folk to enjoy nature, I think the starting point of that idea is that black folks you know, across the African diaspora, including in the United States, have always been connected to the land and been a part of nature. Certainly in the U.S., our experience as Black folks is very much going back to slavery, thinking about the fact that we were forced to work the land and then post-slavery that we, you know, often worked the land as farmers, were exploited in that, and then moving on through history looking at segregation looking at the ways that black people were denied access to parks and pools and also looking at the history of generational trauma and how black folks may have been targeted you know while alone and being in the woods or being in parks or natural spaces lynchings happened in the woods rape happened in the woods so there's just this this history complicated history that black folks have with the land. But I would say that we have always been connected to nature and had our own ways of loving it and enjoying it. But when you look at how the outdoors and enjoying the outdoors is represented in kind of white mainstream culture and kind of through white supremacy in which, you know, the values and norms and beliefs of whiteness are upheld as better. You just don't see black people in the outdoors you don't hear our stories and so even though the white colonial imagination has not allowed that black people certainly have been in nature so i have found as a black person trying to participate in outdoor sports or activities that often i am viewed perhaps as unprepared i might be hiking on a trail and come across usually a white man who might ask me questions about whether or not I know where I am and where I'm going and if I'm prepared in case of you know conditions changing or or in case I need to spend the night out in the woods because something happens I also have felt that I don't get to express my culture fully that I'm implicitly asked to conform to a uh, kind of white outdoor culture. And that might be as simple as style. It can also be represented in like taking a colonial or capitalistic approach to my pursuits, like wanting to conquer or dominate something, Uh, a sentiment of owning the land rather than kind of being a part of the land and receiving from the land. Also a sense of individualism which I believe can come out of white supremacy culture in which the, the way that activities or accomplishments are framed are such that I as the individual accomplished it on my own or you know worked hard to to be able to do this outdoor sport when in reality it may have been very much because of the um, help and guidance of a large community of people
2: there's this line in one article you wrote where you say, quote, I'm not here in the mountains to solve a diversity problem. I'm here to lead. I am a co-steward of the land and a co-creator of a wilderness culture that we shape and direct together. And And I feel like you're directly responding to white people who might say, you know, what, what can we do to be more welcoming? And, and you're saying, look, you don't own it. It's, it's not yours to welcome. Am I getting that right?
9: That's exactly it. That's a big part of it. There's this desire from a lot of white folks to want to include when, you know, what I'm asking and what a number of us are asking is, well, no, we are here too. And we get to um, steward the land. We get to create culture. Don't just ask us to slot into your categories or your activities allow us to guide and direct you as well.
2: Do you have advice for anyone who might be listening, who, who might be nervous about getting outdoors for the reasons we've been talking about, and, and, and maybe they think, you know, I'm not going to see somebody who looks like me on the trail or, you know, whitewater rafting or whatever it might be. Do you have any advice? If you are black or brown, try to grab a
9: friend to go with you, to be together outside. If you are in New England, Outdoor Afro has networks in Boston as well as Portland, Maine. You can join us and come on some of our events that happen all around the region. And I would also say that don't be deterred from going out to explore and discover and figuring out what it is you like and how you like to do it. And don't be swayed if you feel that there's one narrative that tells you that you should participate in the outdoors in a particular way because that's just not true.
2: What's your next adventure, either with a group or by yourself?
9: I am really looking forward to hiking in the White Mountains and in Vermont and in Maine, perhaps this summer. And I especially love going on a hike and then finding a swimming hole at a river or lake afterwards. So I think that's probably next thing on my list.
2: Marty Fuller is an outdoors enthusiast and volunteer leader with Outdoor Afro in Boston. Thank you so much for joining us, Marty. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, Vermont hospice workers reflect on the toll of the past year. And we'll get a glimpse into the day in the life of a school nurse during a pandemic. It's next.
0: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy.
2: Okay, we're back. The trauma of the pandemic has affected many people, from healthcare workers to first responders to grocery store clerks. Hospice workers who deal with death every day are right along with them. The isolation of the coronavirus pandemic turned hospice care on its head. And while the death rate from COVID has dropped, some hospice workers worry about the next surge and the personal toll the past year has taken. Vermont Public Radio's Nina Keck has the story. Hospice care
10: focuses on the quality of life, the comfort and emotional well-being of people near the end of their life. The work is typically slow and calm. I absolutely love my job. It fills my cup. It gives me
5: gratitude.
10: Carrie Ray Shamel and Heather McAllister are both hospice providers in Chittenden County. They work for Bayata, a private home health care company. McAllister works as a nurse, while Shamel is a medical social worker. Pre
5: pandemic, people would say to me, like, your work must be so depressing. And that is like the opposite. Like, a lot of the time, I'm just like in disbelief that I get paid to listen to people's stories and have these intimate moments with individuals and their families.
10: Death is social, both women tell me. It's raw and powerful. Ideally, families go through it together, and there's lots of tears, laughter, and touching. But this past year, because of COVID, Shamel says she was often the only person in the room with patients. And there were times it was hard to keep up.
5: Going from room to room, like trying to hold these hands of people who are dying, trying to schedule these Zooms, it's just so chaotic and so sad.
10: Shamil provided hospice care at Birchwood Terrace, the Burlington nursing home that had the deadliest coronavirus outbreak in the state. Twenty-one residents died there. She also worked at Elderwood, a Burlington long-term care facility ravaged by COVID in November and December.
5: I never understood the term dropping like flies until I went to these facilities.
10: She says people would test positive and have no symptoms. And she'd think, huh, maybe they need to be tested again. And
5: then the next day I would be, go in and they'd be actively dying. Like it, they would turn
10: in a second. Heather McAllister worked at St. Albans Health and Rehab around the same time. And she says it still haunts her. I became
9: basically a triage nurse and started having to what we call black
2: tag people in nursing. That's if you're going to die within a couple hours, that's a black tag. It sounds it's, like a war zone. It was
9: absolutely a war zone. The sheer amount of death. I can't tell you how many bags of belongings that sat outside doors because families weren't able to pick it up. I can't tell you the sheer amount of exhaustion and stress and frustration of having to call a family member and say, I know you haven't seen them, but here's what's going on. They're dying and you still can't see them.
10: The women talk about balancing iPhones over patients, their arms aching at the end of a long day. Carrie Ray Shamel remembers the FaceTime goodbye she set up between a dying husband and his wife at 55 years.
5: I mean, I, I know I have PTSD. I mean, as one nurse at a facility said, every time I put on an N95 mask, I have a trauma response.
10: Shamel and McAllister both describe the red marks etched into their faces from those N ninety five masks. Masks McAllister admits she sometimes forgets to take off. Carrie Ray Shamel says working with the elderly, she's always hated the ageism she sees in society. But during the pandemic, she says it felt especially cruel.
5: For example, just in my neighborhood, I ran into my mother-in-law who was talking to another neighbor I didn't know. And I overheard this neighbor say something like, oh, well, it's just people in long-term care facilities that are dying. You know, it's already people who are sick.
10: She says she was too exhausted to confront the woman. But comments like that infuriate her. The good news is that she hasn't had a COVID patient die in her care since January, But both she and Heather McAllister tell me, in their minds, the pandemic isn't over. Amy Gray works with many of Bayata's approximately 400 hospice providers in Vermont, and she says many feel the same way. It's still uneasy. It's tense. The pandemic has created staffing shortfalls, and it's gone on so long, Gray says. Even before COVID, one study found nearly 40 percent of hospice workers experience burnout.
3: And so when I start to hear about new strains of COVID, I'm like, well, let's get ready. Like, we just, there's so much we don't know. And I think that's what's hard, that that unknown. And that's, I got to be honest, as a clinician,
2: is what's exhausting.
10: Carrie Ray Shamel and Heather McAllister say they're trying to take care of themselves. Both are in therapy and say they spend as much time as possible outside. But Shamil says she was struck last month by the warmer weather and longer days, that changeover to spring that happens so quickly in Vermont. Normally, she celebrates it. But this year, it triggered memories of last March, when all the dying started.
5: To the degree that the other day when I went to let my dog out the back door, I I smelled the spring air and I thought, hmm, it smells like COVID to me. Um, so, it's really making me think about in the past year all the lives I've seen lost to the disease.
10: Despite that, she calls hospice her calling and says she has no plans to find different work. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nina Keck.
2: It can be stressful keeping students and teachers safe during the pandemic. Among those with the responsibility are school nurses. But what's that like? Sophia Rudin of The Publix Radio spoke with four school nurses in Newport, Rhode Island, about how their jobs have fundamentally changed.
6: Maureen Grimes used to start each day preparing for a flood of minor injuries.
2: we walk in the door in
11: the morning, and a typical morning would be to go get our cooler and walk to the cafeteria big ice machine and fill it to the brim with ice. Now we fill it halfway.
6: Maureen's one of two school nurse teachers at the elementary school in Newport. These days, parents are keeping kids with a runny nose home from school. Students know better than to fake a stomach ache to get out of taking a test. And there's less roughhousing happening on the playground. Her colleague, Carolyn Martin.
11: Maureen and I have probably gone from seeing probably 60 to 80 kids a day to maybe three or four. I mean, it's like a dramatic change, and but we are... Like equally as busy now, but more of it's data entry, spreadsheets, calling, doing kind of rideo stuff.
6: Now, from morning till night and through the weekends, their days are dominated by a single concern, preventing the spread of COVID-19. Constant COVID brain, I call it. Sarah Cloutier is the nurse at Newport's high school.
11: It's, it's always on our minds. And if it's not on our minds, someone will ask us a question
1: about it. Um, you're the covert expert now for everyone, your neighbors, your family, your, your coworkers, the kids at school, just everyone. And you
2: can't get away from it.
6: A big part of what keeps the nurses busy is tracking down potential coronavirus exposures. When administrators learn that a student tested positive for COVID-19, either from the health department or from the family, they start working to figure out who that student spent time with. Newport Superintendent Colleen Burns-Germain.
11: The nurse then goes, I'll say, into action. First, she looks at when the child is determined positive. It goes back 48 hours to see when they were um, contagious. Then we look at the child's schedule. What classes did they attend? So then we take up the rosters of the classes they were in and the teachers they were with. And then there's a protocol of distance and the whole nine yards.
6: The nurses say they typically spend about three hours on each case, working with the principals to track down bus charts, cafeteria seating maps, sports schedules, and more. And they contact any teachers and families of students who may have been exposed.
11: See, it's not the positive cases. It's the impact of that and how it, it just, it reaches so many, Um, just one case, uh, like for instance, November 24th, we had
6: 110 that had to go to quarantine. Staffing shortages caused by COVID-19 exposures have forced Newport school administrators to close whole buildings, shifting hundreds of students to distance learning. In addition to contact tracing, Newport school nurses are also running coronavirus testing clinics.
11: They're really superheroes. I have uh, been on the phone almost every weekend with my school nurses. They are 24-7. It's just so much responsibility. You know, when you think of Mm -hmm. like one positive case, how many people it affects, and then are they going
6: to listen to you? Lisa Butterbaugh, the school nurse teacher at Newport's Middle School, says some families want to hear directly from the health department. Others hang on her every word. But the ones she worries about most are the families who don't pick up.
11: I had one today. I got a a call about a girl, and the contact number for the parent is not correct. The work number, she no longer works there. The email, I emailed the parent like three weeks ago about a issue. She still hasn't emailed me back. How do I contact this family?
6: Lisa and her colleagues know that it's difficult for families to hear that their child needs to stay home. They may need to call out from work, potentially losing out on pay, or scramble to find child care. Maureen doesn't take that lightly.
11: I'm the one dropping this bomb on them. The dreaded phone call used to be head lice. <laughs> Your child has head lice. Come and get them. And now it's, your child's been exposed to COVID, you know, so they have to stay home. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for us.
6: Rhode Island teachers are now getting vaccinated, and the federal government is loosening social distancing rules for schools. But even within the last few weeks, over 100 Newport students and teachers were put in quarantine. Maureen says she hopes her job will return to normal soon. She just doesn't know when that will be possible. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sophia Rudin.
2: And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians here in New England. And if you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page. That's nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Publix Radio.